This is Andy Ho, host of the Continuing Education Series, a podcast produced for the members of the French Language Division of the American Translators Association, offering educational content about the craft of French to English and English to French translation and the division. Today, we're joined by Corinne McKay, who is an ATA-certified French to English translator and a Colorado State-certified French court interpreter based in Boulder. She also holds a Master of Conference Interpreting from Glendon College, and as a free-time freelancer, a full-time freelancer since 2002, Corinne specializes in conference and legal interpreting and translates for the international development and legal sectors. She has translated six nonfiction books and is the author of How to Succeed as a Freelance Translator, a career guide for the language professionals with over 15,000 copies in print. Corinne also served on the board of the American Translators Association for seven years, including as ATA president from 2017 to 2019. Welcome, Corinne. Thank you so much, Andy. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. And hello to all of your listeners. So Corinne never really needs an introduction if you've been in translation for any amount of time. (laughs) Her name has come (laughs) up in one capacity or another. But so we're here to talk to her today about her... um, I'm not going to call it a defection, her expansion (laughs) of uh, her range of services. As I mentioned, translator has been, uh, Corinne has been a translator for many years, but recently expanded into interpretation. And so I'm here to pick her brain and ask her about um, what it was like to cross that bridge and wander into new horizons. So first off, just give us a brief overview of what happened. Sure. So I think the most important thing to say is that lots of people asked me, you know, did you branch out into court interpreting and do this conference interpreting degree because you're sort of sick of or burned out on translation or you don't want to do it anymore? And definitely not. Um, I'm still translating almost as much as ever. And I actually, when I ran my numbers for 2022, I actually earned exactly a third of my income from translation, a third from interpreting, and a third from teaching, writing, and consulting. So I think what really happened was I have always been really interested in interpreting. But back in the day when I started freelancing, I actually did a bit of what we would now call community interpreting, and I loved it. But I could not really figure out how to make it work because I have a daughter who's exactly the same age as my freelance business. So she's now 20. But when I started um freelancing and wanted to do some interpreting, it was just really difficult to juggle, you know, childcare for a small child. And in a big picture way, my major motivation for starting a freelance business was to spend a lot of time with my kid when she was little. And at that time, before the advent of remote interpreting, the two things were really incompatible. So I pretty much shelved the idea. And then in 2018, I think, I was at the ATA conference and I went to a presentation by Athena Matilski, who is herself a French, Spanish, and English interpreter and a pretty well-known interpreter trainer. And I had one of those aha moments that I think a lot of us have in life going, I don't have to do this. (laughs) I can go the whole rest of my career being exclusively a translator, but if I want to do this, 
I'm getting to the sort of now or never point. So I'm 51 now, and I think I was 48 at the time. And to me, like, I think lots of people know I'm a huge proponent of the idea, like, if your brain still works, you're not too old. (laughs) But I had a sense of the time it would take for me to really pursue interpreting and thought, you know, I need to either do this now or accept that it may never happen. So I dove in. Yeah, um, I have to say one of my pet peeves is when people say they're too old to do something. And trust me, I realize that can be true. (laughs) But um, yeah, as long as your brain is still working. Someone said to me one day, in five years, you're going to be five years older with or without you know, whatever skill that you put five years into. And I thought, oh, exactly. Right. right. I mean, lots of people said to me, like, the time will pass anyway. <laughs> you exactly. know? And I mean, and I think, right, I've since said to other people who have asked me about, you know, pursuing a new career direction or going back to grad school. And I've said, like, you're too old to be an Olympic gymnast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there are things that you are old, too old to do. But literally, as long as your brain still works, you're not too old to pursue a new career direction. But I did think for me that the sheer amount of time was something that I felt sort of weighing on me. So backing up a bit, um, you mentioned community interpreting. What is that exactly? And did you have any other experience with interpretation prior to uh, jumping in with both feet? Yeah, so I think community interpreting is you know, sort of a catch-all term for interpreting that isn't legal, medical, um, conference. And I think now educational interpreting is really defined as its own specialization. So to give you an example, some of the assignments I would do would like, would be like a French speaking, we have a fair, fairly large uh, Francophone African immigrant population here in Colorado. So a lot of the assignments I would do would be things like a, um, African French speaker is applying to be in a, you know, single parent housing program. And this person has to go to an interview with the program director and they need an interpreter for that. So that would be sort of a classic example of community interpreting, which unfortunately, because it's a really, really important, you know, service in the community is kind of defined by what it isn't. You know, it's not legal medical conference or educational. So, um, yeah, so I did that type of work. And I want to say that I did a couple of assignments that were in a courthouse, but not what you would typically call court interpreting. So things like attorney-client conferences for a defendant and a public defender, um, things like that. So that was uh, really my only experience from 2002 until 2018. And 2018 was when I decided to work with Athena as a one-on-one trainer. And my goal, although um, I did not actually know how much I would love court interpreting, it was more that I thought, I'm not very interested in medical interpreting, and I feel like pursuing a certification would be a good goal. So one piece of advice I would give to your listeners, whether their you know, new career direction is, would be interpreting or something else, is that I think some type of credential or certification helps um, your credibility on the market, but perhaps more importantly, your own self-confidence slash imposter syndrome. 
<laughs> you know, that I thought like there, there are interpreters out there who are completely self-taught, but that I thought, you know, if I could pass the state court interpreter exam, that would say to me, like, I can actually do this. Because to be honest, the first question I asked Athena was, do you think this is crazy? <laughs> what do you think of this idea? Do you think I'm totally nuts? And so that really was the reason I pursued the court interpreter exam. But then surprise, surprise, I actually love court interpreting. So it was a it was a nice surprise. That's interesting. Um, is credentialing different in interpretation than in translation? Because, you know, in translation, it's um, sort of the Wild West. <laughs> Right. Yes, I would say it is both in terms of certifications and in terms of um, having a degree in interpreting if you want to be a conference interpreter. So, you know, I think fortunately for people who use the services of an interpreter in court, there are many, many states, including uh, Colorado, in fact, where it is all but impossible to find work as a Spanish interpreter if you are not court certified. And there are, I don't want to be quoted on the number, of more than half of the U.S. states use a common exam that used to be called the consortium and is now, um, I'm not sure what they call it now, but it's offered by the National Center for State Courts. So if you're interested in that and if your state participates, you can look there. And then once you pass that exam, your certification would at least in theory be accepted in any state that uses that exam. And then there are some states, you know, and oddly enough, it's some of the biggest states like California and New York that do their own thing. Um, they don't use the National Center for State Courts exam. But I would say that in general, I mean, one thing I say in an off the cuff way to people a lot of the time is Tons of interpreters, or sorry, tons of translators are completely self-taught and no one really seems to see it as an issue. It is, in my experience, in fact, the exception when you ask someone how they got into translation that they say, I went to school for it. Whereas in interpreting, I mean, perhaps because it's easier to objectively measure what good interpreting is. I mean, not so much in conference interpreting, but in medical and legal where accuracy is a big part of the equation. I think it is much more common for people to be court certified or certified as medical or healthcare interpreters. And it's a lot more common for conference interpreters to have a master's in conference interpreting. So you were already working with a trainer um, and obviously you're capable of passing the certification exam. Um, why did you decide to get an actual degree in interpretation then? Well, so my ultimate goal from the start had been to do conference interpreting. And I perceived, I think correctly, first, that I would be taken much more seriously on the conference interpreting market if I had a master's in, in conference interpreting, that it would open a lot of doors, which it has. And again, I also thought, um, you know, I'm not 22 years old. And I'm what you would call in the interpreting world a real French B. So conference instead of saying source and target languages, conference interpreters use A, B, and C to describe their languages. So A would be your native language, 
B would be a language that is not native, but you interpret both from and into that language. And then C would be languages that you only interpret from, which are a lot more of a thing in Europe, if you want to put it that way. Like on the European conference interpreting market, you'll see people who interpret, you know, from six languages into English. And the only language they go into is English. Whereas in the U.S., that's a lot less common. And my guess would be probably because there are very few people who make a living in the U.S. as exclusively conference interpreters. Most people do other stuff. And like when you go to court, they're not going to hire two interpreters. I mean, often there are two interpreters there because of the length of the assignment, but they're not going to have one person going into French and one person going into English. So I'm English A, French B, and I always tell people, like, I'm a real French B. I'm not that person. Like in my program at Glendon, there were a lot of people who were French B, but were like, oh, I grew up in Montreal and I went to bilingual school um, or something like that. That's not me. I only started taking French in school in seventh grade. So when I was 12, um, I was a French major in college. I did study abroad in France for a year, but I don't really use French in my daily life. There's no French-speaking community really where I live. Um, My husband's half Swiss, so I'm a dual Swiss citizen and we go there frequently. But I think for me, I particularly felt like I am not that person who's going to be mistaken for a native speaker of both languages. And so I really need this credential to show that I know how to do this. So then why Glendon? So first of all, what programs, what are some of the major programs out there and how did you settle on Glendon? Yeah, well, (laughs) one of those um, silver lining of the pandemic experiences, and when I tell people this story, I always say the pandemic as a thing was a horrendous mental, emotional health humanitarian crisis. And I don't mean in any way to say that the fact that we ended up with, you know, a million people dead from COVID in the U.S. is a good thing. And I was very, very fortunate that no one close to me was seriously affected um, health-wise by COVID. But here's what happened. In 2020, before the pandemic, (laughs) I sort of thought, okay, Um, Court interpreting is going well. You know, I've been doing court interpreting for a year plus, and it's going quite well. And I really think I would like to see if it would be possible for me to pursue conference interpreting. So I emailed Julia Poger, who is uh, what she lives. She's American, but lives in Europe and is a well-known interpreter and interpreter trainer. And she and her husband run a course called the Cambridge Conference Interpreting Course that happens for two weeks every summer. So pre-COVID in 2020, I emailed, or maybe even, it may have even still been 2019, I emailed Julia and said, "Um, I know that the Cambridge course is not a course for beginning conference interpreters, But here's my background in court interpreting, and mostly what I'm trying to do is discern whether it would be worth it for me to do a conference interpreting master's, whether I have the aptitude for that. And Julia very graciously said, yes, as long as, you know, you're clear on your reasons for doing the course and we're clear with the instructors on what your background and experience is, I think that could work. 
So it turned out that then COVID hit and the Cambridge course was in fact online that year. So I, you know, sat in my office in Colorado and did the Cambridge course from there. And over the course of those two weeks, I think the instructors, first of all, the instructors were pretty encouraging about my chances of pursuing a conference interpreting master's. And then one of the other um, people working for the program, not an instructor, but a woman who is one of their admin employees who works for the Glendon program, told me, you know, I don't know when you're thinking about starting, but the Glendon program has just announced that they are putting year two of their program online there. So the Glendon program's two years. The first year had always been online and the second year had been in person. And for that 2021 year, they moved year two online. And she told me, I think you would have some chance of passing the advanced entry exams to do the degree in one year, which is something that a lot of conference interpreting programs offer, that it's technically a two-year program. But if you have some interpreting experience, you can try to take their advanced entry exams to do it in one year. So, I mean, this all came (laughs) together in the space of, I want to say, less than a month, because the con- the Cambridge course, I believe, was the first two weeks of August. I took the Glendon advanced entry exams, and then Canadian schools start a little bit later than the U.S., uh, but I want to say it was, you know, early, like right after American Labor Day, maybe September, you know, 8th or 9th or something that I started the Glendon program. So for me, it really was the opportunity of doing the program online accelerated by COVID that bumped up my timeline. Because I think before that, um, to your question, Andy, about what programs are there, there are only, f- so I really want, this is a whole other topic, but I thought if I'm going to do this, I want to do this for real. And I want to do an IEEC approved conference interpreting masters. So that means that your program meets the requirements set forth by the International Association of Conference Interpreters, which is not like a certification, but which lends a certain degree of credibility to that program. And there's all kinds of requirements that you can look up on the IEEC website. But the point being, there's only four programs in North America that offer French and that meet the IEEC requirements. So really, my idea had more been something like maybe sometime in the distant future, you know, when my daughter is an adult, maybe my husband and I will move to Switzerland for a couple of years and I could do a conference interpreting master's there. That's about as far as I had thought it through. And then um, COVID, which again, I, you know, don't want that to come across as insensitive, particularly to people who lost someone close to you during COVID. Um, But I think the opportunity, the educational opportunities opened up by COVID is really what made it possible for me to do it a lot sooner than I had thought of. Yeah, I think people know what you mean. Um, I've definitely experienced silver linings in tragedy. Doesn't mean it was worth it, but you know, we found a little right. little bit of light. Yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting. So it kind of just all coalesced in a little bit of yep. time. Yep. So did you end up uh, completing the program then in one year instead of two? I did. So I took the advanced entry exams and passed them. And then I did the Glendon program 
uh, all in one year in the school year at the very height of the pandemic. So, you know, September of 2020 until um, we got our exam results in July of 2021. What? Was the day to day of the program like? Um, how many? How often did you meet for classes? How much homework did you have? How many classes did you have? Yeah. So, I think um, my perspective. So, I did not completely stop working during the Glendon program. I did cut back a lot on interpreting work because it was hard to schedule that with my Glendon classes, but I still translated and I still taught. But I think the reason why that was viable, like without having a nervous breakdown, was that it was the very height of COVID and everything was shut down. So I really thought, um, you know, here in Colorado, we were fortunately never restricted from doing things outside. And where I live, we can, you know, hike and mountain bike um, and stuff like that right out our, literally right out the door of our house. So we were fortunate in that way, but, you know, restaurants were closed, stores were closed, you couldn't travel, we barely even had people over, uh, you know, we have a pretty close circle of 20-year friends in Boulder, and we mostly only got together with them outside, you know, sitting in parks. So it's the memory of that, you know, happily is kind of fading, but it really was that I thought to myself, like, okay, everyone else I know is watching four hours of Netflix a day. <laughs> so <laughs> I could do that or I could do this program. So I would say I did pretty much 12 hour days um, five with working and school. I did 12 hour days about five days a week. And then I often did school work also on Saturdays. And then Sundays, I just completely collapsed. Um, so often my husband and I would often try to take Saturdays off together and go, you know, hiking or skiing or mountain biking or something like that. Um, and then, you know, Sundays I would do some schoolwork and then utterly collapse. So in the Glendon program, I mean, it's sort of hard to say because the schedule uh, varied a bit, but I would say between classes and practice, I probably put in like two to four hours a day of classes and practice and sometimes more. And then there were some days where we didn't have class and I just practiced. Um, what are all the methods of practice for interpretation? How does one practice interpretation? <laughs> right. Well, I think the main thing that I would compare it to, because it's something most people have a lot more experience with, is learning a musical instrument. So you're going to do some practicing where you're just interpreting and recording yourself and listening to it and, you know, listening for mistakes and listening for, you know, accuracy, tone, speed, following the speaker, are you sticking too close, are you lagging behind? Glendon has a heavy, heavy emphasis, which I ended up really loving on long consecutive interpreting. So where you're interpreting like a five to seven minute speech that you're taking notes and then interpreting the whole thing back. And I had no experience doing that. Um, the longest consecutive I had done in court was like 30 seconds to a minute. And at Glendon, um, we were tested on up to 10 minutes and we practiced um, voluntarily. My, one of my main practice partners and I would practice up to 20 minutes of consecutive. So that, I think, was the steepest learning curve for me. So I think I did a lot of just generic practice sessions, you know, myself interpreting speeches. Then I did practice sessions with other people. 
where we would interpret for each other and then give each other feedback. And then, you know, just like with a musical instrument, when you do like scales and drills and things like that, I did a lot of things like that. So for example, number drills, there's an online tool called Numerizer that, you know, shouts numbers at you (laughs) and you have to interpret them back or copy them down or whatever you're practicing doing. Um, so I did a lot of targeted practice like that. And then I worked a pretty much an equal amount on my spoken French, because like I said, I'm a real French B speaker. Um, I don't speak French in my daily life except for interpreting. So I did literally hundreds of hours of um, listening to French audio and audiovisual materials and shadowing, which if any of your listeners have um, learn, have studied interpreting, shadowing is the first skill that you learn when people are like, how do you ever learn how to do simultaneous? Well, the first skill that you learn is called shadowing, which is where you repeat after the speaker in the same language. So I did hundreds and hundreds of hours of French shadowing, shadowing speakers with accents, shadowing fast speakers, shadowing slow speakers, you know, um, all that kinds of stuff. And so that I, you know, did lots and lots and lots of that and lots of, you know, all the boring stuff that all of us did when we were learning languages, vocabulary drills, um, practicing idioms, um, practicing different ways of rephrasing, doing stuff that is way too hard and practicing ways of rephrasing things, you know, cutting down to the core message when you have a super fast dense speaker, like all of theirs, all just like learning a musical instrument, there is always something to work on. (laughs) Okay. So a year of working 40 hours a day, you do all your shadowing. Not a day. I wish there were 40 hours in a day. (laughs) Life would be way easier. But yeah, I'd say 12 hours on weekdays. Saturdays, I try to take off. And then Sundays, I would usually work, you know, half a day or so. All right. At the end of this year, you graduated. Yay. Did you feel like you were ready to take on assignments right away? Or did you still have a bit of a ramp up period? Well, I did. Because um, one of the requirements, if you do an IEEC approved um, conference interpreting masters, is that they have to have very rigorous exit exams. So um, the year that I did the Glendon program, um, we had uh, our pass rate on the exit exams was exactly 50%. There were six people in the French group and three of us passed and three of us failed. So I think after doing that. So, I mean, if you want to look at that way, look at it that way, it's a lot more like the European system where you get grades, but really, I don't know that anyone would ever ask to see them, like unless you go on for, you know, further interpreting study or, you know, you want to do a PhD in interpreting studies or something. The real kicker is whether you pass the exit exams and the exit exam most IEEC approved programs, they're going to have a fail rate of like 30 to 50%. So I had that hanging over my head the entire year and I passed um, all four, you do simultaneous and consecutive in both directions. And I passed all four exams on the first try. Um, So I think that was really the boost that shows you, okay, you know, I passed all four exams for an IEEC approved program on the first try. I really need to dive in and start doing this. 
So, okay. So you dive in, you start doing it. I mean, I guess you've been doing some of it before, but you dive in, you start doing it. What are some of the unexpected um, similarities and differences between translation and interpretation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, super interesting question. Well, I think most, the thing that always strikes me, and I, I always use this comparison because it's so easy to quantify, is the speed. So just as an example, I had to take a translation test for a new client a couple months ago. And you had to translate three passages of 300 words each, so 900 words total, and they gave you four hours to do this. And I had to go in person to their offices to do this. And I actually feel like one of my, one thing I'm perpetually working on as a translator is that I rush. I'm, you know, I work too quickly when I'm translating. And I used every second of those four hours. Like when the proctor came to get me, I was, you know, still proofreading and thinking like, okay, I have to just let this thing, you know, wrap this thing up. So four hours to translate 900 words. Now, when you're interpreting, um, most interpreting tests are for simultaneous are going to be somewhere between 125 and 160, or maybe at the very outside, 180 words a minute. A lot of people, when you're in a court or conference situation and they're reading, are going to talk over 200 words a minute. And I've actually interpreted a couple of speakers who I think were maybe closer to 300. So let's give somebody the benefit of the doubt and say that they talk 100 words a minute. I mean, nobody does, <laughs> but let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they talk 100 words a minute. It would take you nine minutes to interpret what it took me four hours to translate. And I actually feel like one of my problems as a translator is working too quickly. So you've got that aspect of it. And then I honestly think lots of people say this, and I now agree, translation has made me a better interpreter and interpreting has made me a better translator. Because I think with translation, you have that aspect of, you know, really, really, really focusing on the perfect word, you know, what is the perfect way to express that? And in interpreting, you have this real-time aspect where, particularly in a conference setting, what you're really trying to do is get the meaning across of what the speaker is saying. And like every interpreting professor who ever lived has, you know, said to their students over and over and over again, focus on the message, not the words. Focus on the message, not the words. You're getting bogged down in the words. And so I think, you know, the whole like message, whereas translation is very, very much about the words. So um, I think, you know, there's a lot of crossover there. And then there really is that aspect of like, you know, separated by a common profession, <laughs> that there are things about translation and interpreting that are so different. Um, yeah. And and that was one of them that when I stood up from that four-hour translation test, I thought, wow, like when you cite translate, which is where you're like interpreting from a written document. So you do that a lot in court settings that they'll say like, you know, read the defendant this plea paperwork in French. And I thought, okay, when you're cite translating, you talk slower than you do in a normal setting because you're reading ahead and thinking about the words, but really it probably would have taken me, you know, less than 10 minutes to sight translate what I just agonized over for four hours. 
I have heard um, interpreters tell translators, I, how can you sit there and just pour over one word for so long? <laughs> and then change it the next day, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as a translator, I can't imagine just spitting it out there into the void. Yep, yep exactly. Yep, yep. So going back to the pandemic, what do you think it was different uh, for you than for other maybe more established interpreters to be released into the profession um, <laughs> in the middle of this global shift? I do because I didn't have any clients. I mean, a few people have asked me that, like, do you think it was easier or harder to start as an interpreter, um, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. So I uh, got my exam results from Glendon, uh, like the very beginning of July of 2021. And um, I think for me, it was an advantage because really my only interpreting client was the Colorado court system. I had no uh, private sector or conference interpreting clients. And so I think because of that, I looked exclusively for clients who wanted remote interpreters because in-person conference still was not coming back at that point. And I had also interpreted online for a whole year. I mean, I feel like a lot of what was really hard, say if I had been my age, I mean, not to stereotype, but if I had been my age and I had been only interpreting in person for 20 plus years, I feel like the hard part about that is not so much that remote Remote interpreting is hard, but making the switch. Whereas I think because I had interpreted online, you know, every day for a year, um, you know, interpreted remotely every day for a year, and we did a lot of like testing different tools and testing feedback methods and, you know, things like that, doing relay interpreting, which is where, you know, let's say you're, you have a Chinese speaker who's on the floor and you're going to go from Chinese into French, but very few people can go from Chinese into French. So you have someone who goes from Chinese into English and then an interpreter like me would go from English into French and relay interpreting online is sort of, it's easier now because a lot of the main tools have added features. But back then at the start of COVID, you had to really hack it together. And so I think all of this stuff that was very challenging um, particularly for interpreters who had been working, you know, in a booth with a sound technician for 20 plus years. I think um, those of us who started interpreting in COVID maybe had an advantage there because it was like all we knew, <laughs> you know, that at a certain point, the only thing you've ever known is inherently not weird because that's the only way that you've ever worked, you know. So you didn't have to change your habits at Correct. all. Correct. Gotcha. Right. Correct. So how do you balance translation and interpretation, um, the the physical differences of it, working in a home office versus being on the run all the time? I mean, if you're, you know, in court without a cell phone and a rush translation comes in, how do you handle that? Or, you know, how, how does yep. this work together? Yeah, yeah. I was actually in court this morning before I talked to you. So, or in, and, and I was physically in court. Um, so I think the thing that I would say is still for me, I really wish that last year I had tracked the percentage of my interpreting work that was in person versus online, which this year in my um, interpreting log sheet I am doing. But I would say, so first of all, probably 80% of my uh, interpreting work is still online. So uh, in-person conferences, I really only have one client 
that does in-person work. Um, and a couple of my clients, they only use me for remote. I've only ever worked for them remotely. So there's that aspect. And then for court, I would say we're probably 75% remote, 25% in-person, which I kind of have, you know, mixed feelings about, but it is true that when you're interpreting for a hearing that is literally going to last 10 minutes, it's not a great use of anybody's time or, you know, taxpayer money to pay because here in Colorado, we get paid for travel time and mileage. And it certainly is more efficient to have people interpreting remotely for that. So I think, I mean, for me, I I think Everyone who's a freelancer has to sort of face this question of, does diversification make you feel um, like the risk and income flow and revenue stream in your business is diversified in a good way? Or does it make you feel like spaghetti against the wall? Like you don't know which end is up and what day it is and what you're supposed to be working on. And I think for me, I really like diversification in my business. So I don't set aside specific hours. You know, uh, people have asked me that, like, do I, you know, interpret in the morning and translate in the afternoon? Do I interpret on, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and translate on Monday and Friday. No, I don't do that. It's it, in a way, may, I mean, maybe my system is a lot more haphazard than it seems like it is. But pretty much right now, I would say I have probably what for me is the ideal work volume. Most of my interpreting work is for the East Coast of the U.S. So it happens in the morning. I'm in mountain time. And so then I would work on translation work in the afternoons. But I think it also sort of goes without saying that the types of translation work I do are, or it doesn't go without saying, but you can probably guess that I'm not that person who's trying to translate 15,000 words a week, um, week in and week out. I translate almost exclusively for direct clients. And so the, the deadlines are usually pretty flexible. And when I have clients who I know are going to need me for a big round of, let's say, like international development funding documents, I would try to accept a little less interpreting work at that time. But I think that um, that for me, that diversification works well, and it makes me feel like the workday is interesting. I'm not overly dependent on any one client. Whereas when I first started translating, I had a couple of years where one agency accounted for like 60% of my income flow. So it would have been almost like losing a salary job if I had lost them. So I feel like for me, it works out really well. Is there any crossover between your clients between uh, in, in translation and interpretation? Have you know have you gotten any translation work from your from your interpretation clients or vice versa? Zero. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's your answer. Like I'm a talker, I like to explain, but the answer to that is zero. Um, and I don't know. I guess I can't really say whether that is typical, but for me, I think. Um, that reflects the fact that most of my interpreting work comes either from the Colorado court system, which has no translation work for French into English, or from agencies that only do interpreting. Um, you know, who I marketed to after I got my degree from Glendon or who I was referred to by other people in my Glendon program. But the answer to that is easy, whether or not, I, I mean, I guess I can't really say if it's typical, but I have actually zero crossover. 
Right. Uh, you mentioned that you your uh, work last year was exactly one third, one third, one third. So apparently mm-hmm. you love all your children equally. Um, <laughs> right. I have only one human child, so that's <laughs> that's an easy <laughs> equation. But yes, I, I love all my work children equally. Um, did you aim for that in any way? Not aim for an exact split necessarily, but did you, you know, for instance, say, well, I'm not doing quite as much interpretation and then leaned into marketing that a little bit harder? Or, you know, did you have a hand in creating that split in any way? So when I finished the Glennon program, I put it out there to myself and for that matter to other people that my goal for the end of 2022, so I wanted to give myself a full calendar year of interpreting because I graduated from Glendon midway through the year, that my goal from for the end of 2022 was to be half translation and half interpreting. And um, so that part of it was deliberate. And then I just think uh, online courses and online training have been pretty strong through COVID. I've, you know, shuffled around the kinds of things I offer to some extent, focusing more on sort of one-time webinars and masterclasses rather than longer four-week classes that I used to do a lot of. But I think it's just, it's a reflection of that, that the split between translation and interpreting was intentional on my part. And I thought, you know, I've been doing online training for so long that I have the system pretty dialed in and I love teaching. So why not continue with that? And then to my, you know, pleasant surprise, that actually turned out to be a third of my income as well. All right. Looking forward, do you have plans to add any other skills to your career arsenal? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, um, I mean, it's it's sort of hard for me to say, but not really. I mean, and the reason why I say it's hard for me to say is because I think, and this is kind of a, you know, conference interpreter nerd topic, but to work in the UN system or a lot of similar international organizations, UN agencies and things like that, if you have French and English, you have to also have Spanish. So in the UN system, and actually in Europe in general, for that matter, they do a lot more of interpreting only into your native language, which is much less of a thing in the US. Pretty much everybody does both directions. So I had to face this sort of soul-searching moment of like, do I want to try to upgrade my Spanish? I took Spanish for two years in high school, but that's about where it ended. Do I want to try to upgrade my Spanish to potentially work in the UN system? And I think after a lot of soul-searching, I decided, um, I just don't think for me that that's realistic, which is in no way to say if there are other, you know, 50 plus year old interpreters out there who want to do that. I'm not in any way trying to discourage you. But I also just thought um, I put a lot of work still into maintaining my French and I love being a freelancer. So I think for me, I kind of decided like I'm happy with where I am right now. And my, you know, I mean, who knows, like, you know, life goes in phases and lots of things can go in unexpected directions. But my uh, sort of, you know, back burner plan right now is to just keep doing what I'm doing for around another 20 years and then see if I would like to. Uh, I mean, I love working and I love my job. So my rough idea is that maybe that would be my phase of just translating books and teaching or something like that. But that's, you know, that's my vague plan for the next two decades right now. All right. 
Last question. Is there anything you want to say to our listeners? I can't pass up that opportunity when you ask me, is there anything (laughs) that you want to say? I mean, I think um, I would just reinforce what we talked about at the beginning of the interview and what you said, Andy, that all of us have these sort of big, crazy dreams or, you know, becoming what you might have been. And I think for me, um, it's really, really important to not get stuck on the time that passed between when you had the crazy dream and when you pursued it. But exactly as you said, Andy, to go like, the time is going to pass anyway, and what are you going to do with it? So for me, I mean, honestly, when I finished my undergraduate degree in French, I thought I didn't I didn't even know what the term was, but I thought about continuing on to school to be an interpreter at the time, to go to school for conference interpreting, even though I didn't really know what that consisted of. So was there a part of myself that was like, you know, good Lord, if I had just done that, you know, 25 years ago, I could have been doing this job that I love this whole time, sure. But I think, you know, like my good friend and colleague, Yves Baudet, once said to me, like, if you find a way to change the past, let me know. But otherwise, all you can do is move forward. (laughs) And that's easy to say, and it's a hard thing to accept. But I think it's really true. And what drove home to me that, you know, the whole thing about the time will pass anyway, is I ran into someone at the ATA conference in Los Angeles this past October who I hadn't seen in person since COVID. You know, like a lot of colleagues who we only see at conferences, I hadn't seen this person since 2019. And they said to me, weren't you thinking about going to school for conference interpreting? (laughs) And I was like, wow, that shows you how slowly the time passes in your own mind and how quickly it passes in the minds of other people that I said to this person, oh my gosh, we must not have talked in a while because I've actually been out of conference interpreting school for more than a year. I already did it. (laughs) So I think that's what I would impress upon your readers. And just to put some numbers on it, I was by far not the oldest person in the Glendon program, and I think there was at least one person who was more than 10 years older than me. So I just think, you know, programs themselves, if you're thinking about going back to school, really have no sense of age discrimination or like you're too old to do this. And, you know, when I graduated uh, like two months before I turned 50 from the Glendon program, and I think there were was at least one person who was more than 10 years older than me. So those are the, you know, sort of twin messages that I would send. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Corinne, and for maybe planting some seeds in our listeners' minds. Hmm? Hmm? Let's hope. Yeah, let's hope. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. This concludes our episode for today. You can subscribe to the Continuing Education Series podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for Continuing Education Series. You can contact the FLD at divisionfld at atanet.org Visit our website at www.ata-divisions.org FLD or get in touch with us on social media. This is Andy Ho signing off. Thanks for listening and a bientôt.